0: writing to Timothy, a young minister in Ephesus. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord God, as we think about your word, we pray that you would help us to see clearly what the Bible is all about and what the Bible means to each one of us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Bull moose will fight during the fall rut. These massive beasts will ram each other with their antlers. And in the midst of the rut, if an antler breaks, defeat looms and is imminent for that moose whose antler has broken... Now, the strength of that bull moose's antler comes from proper feeding during the spring and the summer. Without proper feeding, there is the risk that come the fall rut, that bull moose will be defeated. In a similar way, That is the case for a disciple who is not properly feeding on God's Word. If not properly and regularly fed by the Word of God, by Scripture, we risk defeat when we are engaged in battle and conflict with the evil one and with the spiritual forces of darkness. This is why it is crucial that a disciple make God's Word a high priority In their life. In this lesson, I want us to make several observations about God's Word. And really, this is designed to not just provide information, but to give us transformation and to move us on toward maturity and to exhibit the kind of discipleship that God would have us in our lives. Just as a broad overview, we can think about God's Word in history. God's Word, in one sense, is a history book. It records history, the history in the first place of the nation of Israel, God's people under the Old Covenant, and the history of the early church, God's people under the New Covenant. And that history is designed to come ringing down to us through the pathway of years all the way through history, as it were, to us today, to speak a word into our lives. That is how God has designed it. And really, that's the answer to the first question we might have. Who wrote the Bible? The primary author behind all of Scripture is God. God is the primary author behind the Bible. Now, it is true that God used humans as agents, as the means by which he recorded or wrote down his word. But it's important that we understand that behind each of those human writers was the divine author, God himself. We know that over 3,000 times the Bible... The Scriptures claim to be God's Word through phrases like, and God said, thus saith the Lord. The Word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. These are all self-attestations, self-declarations that the Word makes about itself, that it is of an altogether different origin. Now, again, if we look historically about how God wrote down his word we see that the bible contains 66 books that were written over the span of approximately 1, 15 1600 years over a a multitude of generations by 40 different human writers from all different walks of life moses who was perhaps the first Person to put pen to parchment to write down God's Word. Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter, who came along much later, was just a a simple fisherman, as was his co-worker and co-laborer, John the Apostle. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Daniel was prime minister. Luke was a physician. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul made tents and was also a Jewish rabbi. Forty different writers, all from different walks of life. And they wrote in many different places. Moses was in the wilderness. Jeremiah was in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul was inside prison walls. Luke wrote down while he was traveling. John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And there were others who were engaged in all different times of life. But just two will suffice. David wrote during time of war. Solomon wrote during time of peace. Some writers wrote during a time of of great joy. Others wrote from the pit of sorrow and despair. God had his word written down on three different continents, Asia, Africa, Europe. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it contains some of the most important, uh, the answers to some of the most important questions that we could ask. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the purpose of life? Is there a God and what's he like? And what is the nature of humanity? Who are we before this God? And what has God done on our behalf? The Bible addresses all of these questions. And it does so with marvelous unity and harmony. One writer talks about how the paradise lost in the book of Genesis is the paradise that is regained in the book of Revelation. Another writer says that, Whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is open forevermore in Revelation. Now you compare that kind of harmony and unity that we find in Scripture, where it is recording a single story, God's story. And you see all the diversity, and yet out of that diversity comes this unique harmony and unity. You compare that to, well, any other writings of humans. Imagine if we were to get just ten authors who are from the same generation, perhaps even from the same walk of life, and, and we got them all from the same place. They all spoke the same language. We got them to all sit down and write about even just one of these, well, they can be controversial questions. How about the origin of everything? Well, I suppose you'd have a conglomeration of ideas, and perhaps not one of them would agree with the other. Not so with the Bible, not so with God's Word. Why is that? Well, it's because, as we've been saying, there is but one author behind all of the Scriptures. We started off with the reading from 2 Timothy 3. Writing to Timothy, Paul says that he, he encourages him to continue in what you learn. And what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. He learned it from his mama and his grandma. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy writings. And Paul no doubt has in mind the Hebrew Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament. He says, these are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Paul, talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, and perhaps even with that in mind, makes a general statement about Scripture in total. All Scripture, he says. Not some, not bits and pieces, not this part, but not that part. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that term there for God-breathed, Theonoustos, Theos from uh, which we get God, and Noustos, Pneuma, has to do with breathing. God-breathed. I I like to illustrate it. If, If you were, maybe right where you're at, if you put your hand right in front of your mouth and you just say anything, and you feel the air, the breath that's coming out of your mouth as you say those things, that's the idea here of how Scriptures are breathed out by God. And really, it's the idea that they are given by God. God has provided His Word. And we see immediately the origin of Scripture. It does not have its origin in humans. Again, human agents may be the means by which God writes down, has written down His Word. But ultimately... It comes from God because, because He's the one who breathed it out. He's the one who gave it, who provided it to His people. And then we see the nature of the Scriptures. They are unlike any other book on the planet. No other book is like this book. You gather all the other books together, and look, there are the, the making of books never ends. Every Tuesday, that's, a, that's the publishing day. New books hit the bookshelf. We can go down to any bookstore, any Bible bookstore. We can go down to the library. Books galore. And yet all of those books, well, they may be good and beneficial in many ways. They are not like this book. They are not breathed out and given by God like these books are. That is, These works are unique. Some works may even be inspiring, right? Like maybe, maybe you... Hear a play by Shakespeare, and that inspires you. Or someone's written a book that inspires you to do something. Well, that's good, but it's not God-breathed. Not like these books are. There is something unique about the Scriptures, the writings, the holy, sacred writings. That they're unlike anything else. And what is, the, what is it that's different? Where did it come from? Who is the author? They came from God, and God is the one who had them written down. Even we could say that God spirited them because ultimately it's God the Holy Spirit who's also involved in this work. And so God has given His Word. Now, you're there in 2 Timothy. You can turn back a page or two to 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Bible says, "...do your best." To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, before we get too far, let me just say something about that phrase, the word of truth. That is a statement about the scripture that when God gives his word, it tells the truth. Why Jesus can say, Your word is truth about God's word. How the psalmist can say, the sum of your Word, that is the total, all of it, the sum of your Word is truth. The Bible, the Scriptures, they tell the truth. And they are firmly reliable in the communication of truth. But notice, Paul says that we are to rightly handle, or we are to, we are to correctly handle the Word of God. In order to correctly handle or, or rightly handle the Word of God, It means that we need to understand how it is broken down. And so I would invite you to go ahead, and if you're a a new disciple, then this may be new to you as well, and you may not be very familiar with your Bible, and so you may have to reference the table of contents often. That's okay. That's all right. But I do want to draw your attention to the table of contents, because it does show you the breakdown, the division, as it were, of God's Word. If you're there at the table of contents, you'll notice there's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. The Old Testament, there's your 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. Now, you do have a lot of different genres uh, of, of works that are here. You do have history works. You also have poetic works, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, wisdom literature. You have prophetic literature, prophecy That's contained in Isaiah and following. So you have many different genres here. But as it pertains to the Old Testament, in the book of Romans, chapter 15 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that the things that were written in the past were written to teach us. That through endurance and encouragement from the Scriptures, we might have hope. He's talking about the Scriptures, the the Old Testament specifically, And he's saying that the Old Testament is still good for something. You don't just get to cast it out. That's why your Bible has an Old and New Testament. You need all of it. And specifically, Paul says that it is written to teach us. We can still learn from the Old Testament. We're supposed to learn. It does teach us about God, what He has been up to, and what He's been doing throughout history, how He was bringing it about so that His Son would come into the world. And so, yeah, the Old Testament still has much to teach us. And indeed, through the encouragement and the endurance that we find there in the the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, we can have hope. Ah, the Old Testament is one of the ways by which God gives His people hope. And so the Old Testament, you see it laid out here in in all of those books. And then what about the New Testament? You still have, again, different genres of writing. You have Gospels, which are the history of when God did come near and put on flesh and lived among us. You have Epistles, those are letters that are written from an individual to a church. You have uh, history in the book of Acts. You have prophecy in the book of Revelation. So you have a, a number of different genres in the New Testament as well. So what's it all about? put it all together. What is the Bible all about? And it is the singular story about what God has been up to throughout history, what He has been doing in order to bring about a number of things. Now, specifically as it pertains to the Old and the New Testament, you could say it this way. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so what was concealed in the New Testament has now been revealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament was saying, he's coming, he's coming. And the New Testament is saying, he came, he came. The message of the Bible is that God loves his creation, specifically people, you and I. He loves us with an incredible love, and he's been up to one thing. In all of history he has been seen to it that he brought his son into the world at just the perfect time so that God the son could die on the cross in your place and in mine in order to bring about the salvation and the redemption of people a, a, part, a, a particular people a peculiar people as Peter writes about in 1st Peter chapter 2 that's what God has been up to He's been bringing about the salvation of people through His Son. The Old Testament, it was a mystery. Now in the New Testament, it's been revealed. The Old Testament was saying, He's coming, He's coming. The New Testament says, He's here, He's here, He came, He came. And so if that's a broad overview of of God's Word, and what's in the, the Bible, and there's a lot more that could be said about it, but after just a, a brief, broad stroke like that, what can we say about God's Word as it pertains to my life and your life? How, you know, we, we sometimes ask the question, how does God's Word fit into my life? And that that's not too bad of a question, but maybe we could rephrase it a little more clearly by asking, how do I fit into God's Word? You see, it's not just about making God's Word fit into your life. It's about fitting your life into the beautiful story that God is telling through His revealed Word. If, or maybe since, the Bible is God's Word recorded for all of humanity for all time, then it's clear that He is telling us something. He is communicating His will for the lives of all who will bow the knee to King Jesus. So what do we do with it? Well, in the first place, God's word must be top priority. It must be first place in our life. In the Gospel of Luke, we have the physician Luke recording for us the story of Jesus and Part of this story in Luke chapter 4 is when Jesus goes home to his hometown. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And there is something here that is instructive for us as it pertains to our life in relation to God's word. Luke 4, 16 and 17, the Bible says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord, and on it goes with a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Now, I want to bring this to our attention. There's a lot that's going on in this particular text, but I, I just want to, for our purposes, focus on that phrase, as was his custom. In other words, Jesus made it his habitual practice on the Sabbath. That is the the seventh day of the week when all the Jewish people rested from their work. On the Sabbath, every Jewish person was to go to synagogue. And Jesus made it his custom, his habitual practice of showing up on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Every Sabbath, you knew where you could find Jesus. He'd be in synagogue. Now, what did they do in synagogue? Well, they did a number of things. They worshiped God. They would offer prayers, and they would do what Jesus does here. They read the Scripture. And so here is Jesus demonstrating that God's Word was a high priority in his life. It was his custom to be in synagogue on Sabbath to hear the Word of God read or to read it himself in the hearing of all those gathered it was his habit to hear it read and to read it himself. Jesus, as our example, sets the example of showing us how for us as Christians, as disciples, God's word must have high and top priority in our lives. Now, why is that? Well, there are several reasons for that, not the least of which the Bible is essential For our growth. Go back to 2 Timothy 3 and notice again what the Apostle Paul says there. After he says that all Scripture is God breathed, breathed out by God, given by God, notice God has a specific purpose for His Word. Now, this is true, Uh, let me just mention Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where the prophet talks about how. God sends His rain in order to water the ground, to produce crops. And in a a similar way, in the same way, God will send His Word out in order to accomplish the purpose for which He sent it. God always has a purpose for sending His Word. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. And Paul is very specific about the purpose of God's Word in the life of believers It's breathed out by God, and notice he continues, verse 16, it's profitable. Another translation says, it's sufficient. That is, it lacks nothing. It has everything we need for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the Word of God is sufficient to teach us. We need no other standard. The Scripture is sufficient for teaching, for reproof. That is when you, you ha, you've had something proven to you in the past, but now, hmm, let me just go back and reprove this to myself. And related to this is the idea of correction. When maybe we get off the right path and get onto a wrong path, it's Scripture that is sufficient to correct us. It is fully capable of correcting us and getting us back on track. And by the way, that's part of what we do as Christians with one another. We correct one another through the Word. Everything must come back to and be established by Scripture. And for training in righteousness. That training is the process of maturity. And we're going to have more to say about that. Let's finish verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, may be whole. Again, lacking nothing. And listen, if Scripture was sufficient to give us all of these things, then it must be sufficient sufficient to make us complete and lacking nothing, equipped for every good work. That's part of what it means to be a disciple as well, is to engage in good works. Let's turn and look at Ephesians chapter 4 briefly as well, because this is tied to the idea of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Scripture says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, each person who is in Christ Jesus, that is in his church, and that happened at baptism. When we are immersed, we one of the things that happens is we are united with Christ. Well, as a result of that, Every Christian has received a spiritual gift that we are to identify and put to use for good work and ministry. And notice that ministry has a specific goal. Look at verses 11 and following. He, Christ that is, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teaching shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You hear it again and again throughout this text. You have been put into the body to help your fellow Christians grow. And it's the word that instructs us that we are to grow up and to move on to maturity, to mature manhood. The measure, the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. All this business of growth, that as we exercise our gifts with one another, gifts that we have discerned from the Scriptures, the Scriptures teaching us how we can put those into practice, now we can be of benefit to one another. And we ourselves can grow and we can help others grow up as well. We'll help the whole body, the whole church grow up and move closer and closer to maturity. When it comes to moving toward maturity, one of the aspects of maturity, one of the characteristics of it, is that we are able to apply Scripture, the truth of Scripture, to our lives. But in order to apply Scripture, the step right before that would be you have to be reading Scripture. You have to be studying Scripture. And so I want to encourage you To get a good Bible reading program, there are any number of them. You can get them on your phone as well. You can set reminders to remind you, hey, you need to read uh, X number of verses or chapters or what have you. Get a good Bible reading program. Get your head into this book. And by reading and by studying, you can identify the truth and begin to apply it to your life. It will teach you. It will reprove things. It will correct you. It will train you in righteousness. Those are the positive changes that you'll begin to see in your life as you look more and more like Christ, as new desires and and new affections present themselves in your life. When you're faced with temptation, you're able to identify the way of escape. When you give in to temptation and you sin, you can identify that God has made provision for His people. The blood of Christ forgiving all of your sin. And you can be encouraged by the fact that the blood of Christ has forgiven that. That as you repent and and turn away and renounce that and say, I don't want that anymore. You can be assured God will help you and strengthen you. Invite you to keep walking with Him. He'll conform you more and more to the image of Christ. He will continue to move you toward maturity. Now, if you're there in the book of Ephesians, turn a page or two over to chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And what we'll see here is that God's word makes us ready for battle. I hate to be the bringer of bad news, but we're not in heaven yet. (laughs) And that means that so long as we live in this world, we will do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, specifically here at the end of Ephesians, Paul hones in on that third battle, the battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. He says, finally, verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And listen, it's going to be God's Word that is going to keep you spiritually strong. Scripture will be one of the ways by which God will strengthen you, fortify you. In fact, the way this can read is, be strengthened by the Lord. And it will be through Scripture, through the Bible, that God will do that. And in the strength of His might, verse 11, "...put on the whole armor of God." that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice the devil. He is the arch enemy of the church. He hates God. He hates Christ. He hates the bride of Christ. He hates all things holy. And so he is, Peter says, he's like a, a roaring lion on the prowl looking for someone to devour. He is the great enemy. And he leads, verse 12, The rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. See, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says there in verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is. There's a spiritual war going on, and we must put on the whole armor of God. Therefore, verse 13... "...take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore." You get the idea here of of standing on firm ground, terra firma, not moving backwards. "...stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, an entire series of lessons can be developed from just these various articles of armor. And, and that's for another time. I want us to focus in on and hone in on that sword of the Spirit, which is, The Word of God. Now, in the original language, they had a couple of different words for the word, Word. They had logos. That's the word that John uses at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the idea of logos, it's a a word not necessarily in a, a grammatical sense, but in a language sense, in a a concept, or an idea. That is not the word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 6 and verse 7 for word. The word that is used here is the term rhema. And rhema has to do with a short saying, a a brief word. And so when it comes to this idea of of Rama, it, it does have to do more with the thing that is spoken. Now, where does this term show up elsewhere in Scripture? And this is what I love about Scripture: is it you're able to interpret Scripture with the Scripture. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter four, very important chapter, we have the temptation of Christ. And here in Matthew four, you have that term, Rama. Show up again. Jesus, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written. Notice what Jesus does. When faced with temptation, he goes back to the Word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus here is quoting from the law, from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, specifically chapter 8 and verse 3. But here he says, it's written. And notice, Jesus does not begin quoting entire chapters or entire books. He quotes a single verse. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the word that is translated there, word, is that term, rhema. You see, Jesus is showing us how we take the sword of the Spirit, we put it in the Spirit's hand, so that we can wage war gloriously for God. Jesus shows us, that in the heat of battle, look, listen, if, if you can memorize entire chapters, entire books, well and good. Uh, when I first went through preaching school, in order to get out, out of a final for First John, I memorized the book. Five chapters. Didn't have to take the final. And, and that's great. But listen, what is necessary in the heat of battle, according to Jesus, is just a brief word, a brief saying. If you can memorize those key verses in Scripture, that will be sufficient for battle. In fact, as we come back here to Ephesians 6.17, when Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, again, they had different words for the word sword. They did have the word that would denote a great big sword that a conqueror would wield. It's not the term that Paul uses here. He uses the term Machaira. And that is a short sword, like a dagger, easy for close combat. Ah, you get the picture. The devil is not far off, just kind of, you know, lobbing intercontinental ballistic missiles at you. He's not up in a drone controlling it somewhere. This is close quarters combat. He's right there with you. All the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms, they're, they're right there. You don't see them. They're spiritual beings. But they're just as real as the air you breathe. And at the same time, God has given us what we need. He's given us the short sword, the dagger that we need to fight off the junkyard dogs of the spiritual realm. He's given us His Word. Yes, in long form, the Logos, the Word incarnate, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But He's also given us His Rama. The, the brief saying that if we commit these to memory, if we store them up and treasure them in our hearts, we will be prepared in the heat of battle. We'll be prepared to wage war gloriously for our God. If we're going to walk step and step with Jesus, and that's the idea of the Christian life, is to walk step and step with Jesus, we need to have a devotion to God's Word. We find our place in God's Word when we make it top priority, when we allow it to mature us, and we apply what we read and and study, we apply it to our lives, when we're conformed to the image of Christ, and when we wage war gloriously in battle with God's Word. Again, do not risk defeat. Don't risk a a broken antler in the heat of combat, as it were. Don't risk losing the battle because you've not properly fed yourself, regularly fed yourself during those times of peace. As students, as, as learners, as disciples of Christ, we need to follow His example and ensure that God's Word is priority number one and it's stored up in our hearts and in our minds for those times. And so let us learn, and let us study. Let us read so that we can present ourselves to God as workers unashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let us pray. Lord God, you have provided us with your word, and we are so grateful for that. We pray that you would kindle within us a desire for your word, an appetite for your word. Produce those new affections where we love your word because ultimately we love you and we want to know you better. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.